Good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning with grateful hearts that we can gather with other believers to worship you. I hope every Lord's Day our minds are taken to Christ's resurrection from the dead on the first day of the week and the great victory that gives us over sin and death. And so we come here with thankful hearts, Lord. Brought before you this morning for an incredibly sobering uh, passage, or really account in my mind. I've, I find few more sobering in all of Scripture than what we read this morning. Very unique as well, Lord, and so I pray that you would give us um, hearts that are receptive to the, te- to the truths that you want to teach us from this. Help me as your servant to mine out the uh, wonderful treasures that you have contained in the verses that we will be looking at. We'll be jumping around a little more than we have during other sermons just to focus on, on the topic of Lot's wife. I pray for any unbelievers who have joined us, that they in particular would have a gracious work done in their hearts, that they would be regenerated, brought to life spiritually, granted repentance from their sin and faith in Christ because of the strong lessons contained from her, um, from really her account for them. I pray for the unbelievers who are here, Lord, that you'd continue the sanctifying work in conforming us into the image and likeness of your Son, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll get to see all of you this morning. So the title of this morning's message, which you can probably see on your bulletins, is Why We Should Remember Lot's Wife. And to be clear, I did not choose this as a Mother's Day message. (laughs) We just providentially happened to reach these verses as we're going verse by verse through Luke's gospel on Sunday morning and find ourselves at Luke 17.31. I read through a handful of articles this past week about why we should not look back in life, and even though there were probably 20 to 30 different reasons I found, here are the top five. Don't look back because you can't change the past. Don't look back because you're not the same person. Don't look back because life is too short. Don't look back because you'll repeat old patterns. Don't look back because your future is waiting But nobody gave the number one reason that you should not look back, which is you could be turned into salt. Yes, that's exactly right, as we'll see in this morning's verses. So we'll start at verse 24 for context. I'll go through this quickly because these are the verses that we covered in last Sunday's sermon. It says, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So Jesus compared his second coming with lightning. And as we talked about last week, like lightning, Jesus' second coming will be visible, it will be quick, and it will be unexpected. Verse 25, first, he, but first, because it's a contrast, he says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus' second coming is when he's glorified, but he's talking to disciples who have not yet seen him crucified, and so he wants them to understand the order that it is suffering and then glory. And so before they get too excited about the glory of a second coming, he reminds them of this order that it's suffering and then glory. And then he moves back to talking about his second coming by using two of the most familiar accounts of judgment in Scripture to prepare people, and that is the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'll go through verses 26 through 30 pretty quickly here. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. And notice what he says about the days of Noah. He talks about him eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28. 
Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, and then notice what he references in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, to mention the days of Noah and days of Lot is probably to mention two of the wickedest seasons in all of human history. But you notice that in discussing them, Jesus never mentioned any of the wickedness that accompanied those days. Instead, he focused on very moral and reasonable activities such as what? Eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, buying and selling, planting and building. He wanted to emphasize not how wicked the people were, but instead how unexpectedly the judgment came just like Jesus will return unexpectedly. And this brings us to the new verse for this morning. Look at verse 31 with me. Jesus says, On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise let the one who was in the field not turn back. Now, this could sound strange to us because we don't spend time on our roofs, probably only if we were fixing them. But in Jesus' day, roofs were flat, and people would relax on them. There were external stairways on the side of houses that gave people access to the roofs. Uh, can you think of one account where that actually seems to come into view for us? Do you remember the paralytic? How did they get the paralytic to the roof? They would have taken those external stairs with him and then started to take the roof apart and then lower him through. Now, the context is the second coming of Christ. Jesus is destroying his enemies He's establishing his kingdom on the earth, and so when he returns, that's not the time to do what? That is not the time to turn back because the danger is going to be so great. People shouldn't be looking back at Jesus' second coming longingly at their possessions. Doing so would show a focus on the earthly versus the heavenly. It would show that to these people, this life is more important than the next life. And so this is really a warning to people, to people in our day, because Christ could return in our day. It's a warning to people who are obsessed with the physical instead of the spiritual. It's a warning to people who cling to these earthly lives versus what heaven offers us. It's a warning to people who are tempted to confuse the enjoyments and the pleasures of this life, which was the case for those in Lot's day and Noah's day, with the eternal life that could await them. And so when Jesus returns... True believers are not going, you could say it like this, true believers are not going to be concerned about what's in the house. They're going to be concerned about what's in heaven. And so they're not going to be looking back. And that's what the end of the verse says. It says not to turn back. And then Jesus provides the premier example of looking back and suffering as a result. In verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. So if you ever have to memorize a short verse, <laughs> or memorize a verse in a short period of time, you could look to this one because with only three words, the only verse that rivals it is what? <laughs> Jesus wept. So you guys will have that one memorized. Now you can memorize this one too. So what's interesting about this is unless I'm mistaken, and you can correct me if I am, there are only two people in all of Scripture that we're commanded to remember. One of them's pretty obvious, right? We have it down there on the communion table. One person we're to remember is Jesus himself. He told us to remember him, Luke twenty-two nineteen. He took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me 
when you partake of this, and then the only other individual I can see who we're commanded to remember is Lot's wife. Now, if you told me that there was a person in Scripture to remember besides Jesus, I would probably guess someone like Abraham or David or Daniel for two reasons, their godliness and their content. And by that, I mean I would expect us to be encouraged to remember them because of their godliness, what they did, what we can learn from them, how well we serve the Lord, the great example that they are for us. Because remember when the New Testament writes about the Old Testament, it says these are examples set down for us to admonish us and instruct us. And then second, their content. I could imagine Jesus telling us to remember one of these men simply because of how much is written about them. Lot's wife would not even make the list for the opposite of these two reasons. First, not her godliness, but her ungodliness. And second, the lack of content about her. Aside from this verse right here with only three words in it, there's only one other verse in all of Scripture about her, and it's a famous one. You probably only have to read the Bible one time to remember what happened to her because it is so memorable. And this is the other verse. Genesis 19:26. But Lot's wife, behind him, she was lagging behind, she looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So Jesus tells us to remember Lot's wife, which is particularly interesting because we know almost nothing about her. We don't know when she was born. We don't know where she was born. We don't know who she was born to. We don't know her parents. We don't even know her what? Her name. She just goes down as Lot's wife. I was listening to one sermon by Phil Johnson, and he repeatedly referred to her as Mrs. Lot. Now, something that makes this more interesting is the other verse about her is found in Genesis, which is the book of what? Beginnings or origins, right? That's what Genesis means. It's really the book of genealogies and that it has more genealogies. Genesis has six genealogies. The book with the second most genealogies only has two genealogies, and that's numbers, and then any other books only have one genealogy. And my point in telling you this is Genesis is the book about beginnings. It is the book about backgrounds. It is the book about parents. It is about where people came from, who they came from. Yet in that book... There is nothing about Lot's wife except that verse that she looked back and became a pillar of salt. So it begs the question, why would Jesus tell us to remember a woman whom we know almost nothing about? Well, we are going to spend the rest of the sermon answering that exact question. And this brings us to lesson one. Lot's wife, lesson one, shows the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly and punish the unrighteous. What? Shows the Lord knows how to rescue the godly and punish the unrighteous. Did I say it? I probably did, and I appreciate you helping me there, Vicki. I wouldn't put it past me to make a mistake like that, and I always appreciate anyone that helps me straighten things out. Did I get it right up there? Shows the Lord knows how to rescue the godly and punish the unrighteous. There we go. That's correct up there if I messed it up right here, at least. And then go ahead and turn to Second Peter 2. We're not going to turn back to Luke. Hebrews, James, Peter. So after Paul's epistles, after the Pauline epistles, Hebrews, James, Peter, 2 Peter 2.
2 Peter 2, look with me at verse 4. To see God discuss rescuing the godly and punishing the unrighteous. And I'll read through these verses quickly so they wash over and you pick up the theme because if I slow down or pick it apart, you won't catch it as easily. So in verse 2 Peter 2, 4, God says that if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, verse 5, if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And I just want you to notice something here in verse 6 that stands out to me. It says that, and it doesn't say this about the other accounts of judgment, but Sodom and Gomorrah is to stand as an example to us. Did you catch that in verse 6? Making them, Sodom and Gomorrah, an example. It doesn't even say that about Noah's day, or doesn't even say that about what transpired with the angels. And I would just ask you, does it seem like our world has learned from the example of Sodom and Gomorrah? No, I absolutely do not think that our world has learned from that example. Now, before I read the next two verses about Lot, I want you to notice how many times he's called righteous, because if you're familiar with Lot, he probably, if you didn't have these verses, you probably wouldn't even think of calling Lot a righteous man, but he probably demonstrates better than almost anyone else in all of scripture that we are made righteous by our, oh, come on, guys, we're made righteous by our by our faith, and he is a premier example of justification or being declared righteous by faith because it sure wasn't his behavior that would have informed us of his faith. So verse 7 says, if God rescued righteous Lot, who, notice this, Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, that means the wicked people in Sodom, verse 8, for as that righteous man lived among them, among the people of Sodom, day after day. He was tormenting. Lot was the one tormenting his righteous soul by living there because he's the one who chose to live there, which is why it says he was tormenting his own soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So three times in two verses, Lot is called righteous, and I want you to keep that in mind. Now, the point Peter's trying to make with these verses is found in verse 9. This is his summary verse. Then, or therefore, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So God can rescue the godly from trials. Now, in these verses, who would be the godly that were rescued from trials? Not a trick question. In these verses, who would be the godly who were rescued? Noah and Noah's family and then Lot and Lot's family. And then God can keep the unrighteous under punishment, and that would be those drowned by the flood, and then that would be those destroyed by the fire and sulfur poured out on Sodom. Now, I just told you I had a question that wasn't a trick question, and now I do have a trick question for you. Did Lot's wife escape Sodom? You want to say she did, but you know she was consumed. Even if she made it out of Sodom, she died with the people of Sodom. And why is that? Because that's where her heart was. She was as much a citizen of Sodom as those people who were consumed by the fire and brimstone, and so she was also consumed with the fire and brimstone. And so my whole point is this. 
she demonstrates very clearly that nobody's escaping God's judgment, that he can reserve the unrighteous for punishment or judgment, even when it looks like they have what? Escaped. They're not going to escape him. Nobody's going, no unrighteous or ungodly people are going to escape God's judgment. Now, the next lesson, lesson, Lot's wife, lesson two, disregarded God's grace. Lot's wife, lesson two, disregarded God's grace, and then turn to Genesis 12. It's going to take me a little while to build up to this lesson. So Genesis 12, and while you turn there, just to remind you of a few things, what relationship was Lot to Abraham? What was the relationship between them? Uncle and nephew, right? But because Abraham took Lot with him, Lot was more like Abraham's adopted son. Look in Genesis 12, verse 5. Abram took Sarah, or Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, or we would say nephew, there's just not a Hebrew word for nephew, all their possessions that they gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And then when they came to the land of Canaan, now there's no mention of Lot having a wife here. He was unmarried when he left with Abraham. Now look one chapter to the right at Genesis 13, 1. Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had, there's mention of Abram's wife and Lot with him into the Negeb. Again, no mention of Lot having a wife. Look at verse 5, Genesis 13, 5. Lot, who went with Abram, it mentions his flocks. He had flocks, he had herds and tents that the land could not support, both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. So two things to, to notice. Again, no mention of Lot having a wife. And then second, Lot was very wealthy. That's why he had to separate from Abraham, because they each had so many animals that they could not share the same land, and so they part ways. And Abraham graciously, in the ancient world, Lot would have deferred to Abraham, but Abraham, demonstrating his humility and grace, defers to Lot and allows him to choose. Lot looks, you might remember this from, from Jake Moskis' sermon he preached on this, very enticed by the cities of Sodom, starts moving ever closer until he actually moves into Sodom. But this is when Lot started heading that way. Look at verse 12, Genesis 13, 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. And again, no mention of Lot having a wife. So here's what we know. We, Lot, we know that Lot didn't have a wife before moving to Sodom and we know that he had a wife after moving into Sodom. So it's likely that Lot's wife was a citizen of Sodom. I mean, that's how it goes, right? You're going to go live in Sodom. You're going to be around women who are from that city. And so he married someone from that city. Now, something to keep in mind is God does not slight godly women in Scripture. And in Genesis, the godly wives' names are frequently given. Think of Sarah. Think of Rebecca. Think of Rachel. Think of Leah. The fact that Lot's wife is not named, except, or the fact that she's only mentioned to describe her destruction, says something about her character. That God thought nothing of describing her, giving no more attention to her, not her background, not how she married Lot, which are things that God did with other women throughout the book of Genesis. Most of the main characters in Genesis 
have discussions of their wives and how the men came to marry them. You might remember that Lot was captured when Sodom was defeated. And kind of this is a little outside the scope of the sermon, but if you're going to live with the world, then when the world gets judged, you're going to get judged. So Lot's living in Sodom. Sodom gets conquered. Lot is captured. Abraham gets news that his nephew Lot has been captured, and so he takes a standing army, and he goes to rescue Lot. Look at Genesis 14, 16. Genesis 14, 16. Then Abraham, Abraham, after defeating the kings who had conquered Sodom, and, or in other words, after Abraham rescued his nephew Lot, it says Abraham brought back all the possessions. Also, he brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So more than likely, Lot's wife and probably his daughters were part of this group of women. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the grace that Lot's wife had been a recipient of, because it was a considerable amount of grace that she had received. In fact, many of the graces that she received are graces that none of us receive in our lives. When Abraham rescued Lot, she was one of the recipients of that deliverance. That was a grace of God. When Lot entertained angels as his wife, she would have been the hostess. She was the hostess when angels were entertained. That should have been a powerful witness to her and other grace of God. When the perverted men of the city were trying to knock down Lot's door and break into the house, they were trying to knock down the door of the house that Lot's wife lived in as well. So she witnessed this miraculous deliverance when the angels blinded the perverts and saved Lot and his family, including her. Another dramatic grace of God. When the angels dramatically delivered Lot and his family from Sodom, fire and brimstone raining down, or about to rain down, she's about to be consumed. The angels grab Lot, we'll see this in a moment, drag him and his wife and daughters out of the city. She was a recipient of that grace, being delivered from that fire and brimstone. Now, finally, Lot was a flawed man, but one of the reasons I wanted you to see it in 2 Peter 2 is that three times he's called a righteous man. And so my point is one of the greatest graces in Lot's wife's life was being married to what? A righteous man. Despite all of Lot's flaws, he was a righteous man, which made her the beneficiary of of Lot's righteousness and faith. You don't have to turn there, but just think about 1 Corinthians 7. And what does it say? Verse 14, the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her believing husband. That doesn't mean she's saved. Holy means set apart. I mean, I've stressed this over the years here that we can hopefully rightly divide certain words in Scripture and that holy doesn't mean saved. It doesn't even mean righteous. It means set apart. And so it's very fitting to say that an unbeliever married to a believer is made holy or set apart for a very special work. I mean, what more unique way could you see God setting apart an unbeliever than, having that, than allowing that unbeliever to be married to a believer? And I'm not even for a moment defending believers marrying unbelievers. In fact, Lot should not have married this woman, and I'm sure that he regretted it later. But the point is, it was a very special work to be married to a believer. More than likely, she heard Lot pray. 
She heard stories about Lot's uncle, Abraham, and how God had called Abraham out of his country and how Abraham brought Lot with him. It says that Lot was greatly distressed and tormented by Sodom's wickedness. I I doubt that Lot's wife was equally tormented or distressed, but it was still a witness to her. It was still a grace of God that she was able to be with a man that she could tell at least this believer despised the wickedness that was happening around them. So she was shown how evil these people were, how much they needed to repent, and how far she should distance herself from them. She was able to become a member of Abraham's family, which means she's part of the family of the father of faith. She was part of one of the greatest families in the Old Testament, the family of the patriarch. And she despised all of these graces. And so whenever we think about Lot's wife, we should think about how she despised the graces of God and wonder if there are any of God's graces that we despise. If you're a young person here, you've been given an incredible grace just being born into a Christian family. Actually, if you're sitting here and your parents brought you here, it's an incredible grace that your parents bring you to church. Lots of children don't even have that grace. I would say if your wife and your husband comes to church with you or your husband and your wife comes to church with you, that is a grace. The fact that we have Bibles, just this morning when Dennis was sharing during Sunday school, you might have noticed that he said that those people that he's conducting this missionary work to are still waiting for the Bible in their languages. How often are we taking advantage of this wonderful grace God's given us having the entire Bible in our language with who knows how many commentaries? I mean, when I go to my office, I'm not looking for commentaries. I'm limiting the number of commentaries I'm going to look at because there are so many of them to dig through. The grace of God's sermons on our phones, the availability of Scripture and godly men to listen to, the home fellowships, the Bible studies, the prayer meetings, incredible graces in our lives. And I'm just asking, are you despising any of them? Because you don't. And I'm not saying you need to do everything, but I would say that if you're doing nothing then you're despising God's graces. Now, the next lesson, Lot's wife, lesson three, disobeyed divine commands. She disobeyed divine commands. Turn to Genesis 19. I'm going to read through some verses pretty quickly here because they're self-explanatory, and I suspect many of you are familiar with the account. Genesis 19, verse 12. Then the men, and these are angels, so I'm going to call them angels. They're called angels a little later, so I'm not taking liberties with the text. Genesis 19, 12, the angels said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. These are God's representatives. They speak for God. And they said, God is going to destroy this city. Look at verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged. They said to Lot, they said, up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. More than likely, Lot's wife heard these angels speak. She heard these angels discuss the destruction of the city that was coming. And then verse 17, the most specific command, Genesis 19, 17, they brought them out. The angels had to bring out Lot and his family And one of them said, escape for your life. And then notice this, do not look back. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. 
She had, she was a woman who had no regard for what God said. She completely disobeyed divine commands. She did not care if these angels spoke for God. If she did not, if she did not like what they said, she would not obey. And so I just ask you, you're told to remember Lot's wife, and this is one of the things to remember about her, that she disobeyed divine commands. Would you disobey divine commands? Would you see something written in Scripture and then disobey that command? Because to do so would be worse than the angels, than Lot's wife when the angels spoke to her because we're hearing directly from God himself through the pages of Scripture. So as we remember Lot's wife, are there any commands that we disobey? And one of the really wonderful things about pastoring is, or preaching, let me say preaching, because it could be for anyone, anyone that's sharing God's word, a home fellowship leader, a Sunday school teacher. I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but I'm so blessed by the confidence that I have that when I share a lesson, I never have to single out any of you because I know the Holy Spirit is doing that. I don't have to go into that much detail because when I say, as we remember Lot's wife, are there any commands we're disobeying? If you are, you're convicted about it right now. I have that much confidence in the Holy Spirit to be doing that work in your heart. That is a great blessing for me. Next, Lot's wife, lesson four, she loved the world. She loved the world. Look at Genesis 19:16. Lot lingered. And I just want to be clear, Lot lingered, which could make it look like he wasn't greatly distressed by the city. It could look like his righteous soul wasn't tormented. But why did Lot linger? It was not for the same reason that Lot's wife or their children or or in-laws lingered. Why did Lot linger? Because he didn't want his family destroyed in the coming judgment. He was lingering to get them out of the city, going from person to person, his sons-in-laws, telling them what's going to happen. But here's, you want to know something pathetic? absolutely pathetic regarding the spiritual leadership of a man in his home. Lot had so destroyed his reputation with his own family that when he told them the judgment was coming, what was their response? You must must be joking. They didn't even believe him because he had so destroyed his credibility as the spiritual leader of his family. So look in verse 16. There, he lingers, he lingers because they don't listen to him. They don't listen to the angels. So finally, the angel seized Lot and his wife, his two daughters, by the hand. The Lord being merciful to them, to him, and they brought him out of the city, brought him out, and they set him outside the city. Lot's wife has to be drug out because they were so reluctant to leave. Now, why? Why did Lot's wife want to stay so badly after being told repeatedly by angels that the city is going to be destroyed? Why would she linger when she knows it can cost her her life? I think there are two reasons. First, briefly look at Genesis 19.1. Genesis 19.1. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Who would sit in the city gates typically? The city leaders. The city leaders. Kind of think of Proverbs 31, 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. The virtuous wife is praised because her husband is allowed to reach a place of prominence within the community. The idea is behind every good man is a good or maybe better woman, right? 
And so we see Lot. So Lot didn't have credibility with his family, but he had credibility with the city, and he had become a leader of the city. Part of the reason that Lot's wife didn't want to leave was she was married to a man who was prominent and respected in the city, and he was very wealthy. Probably Lot's wife helped contribute to him becoming a leader within the city. Lot's wife enjoyed being married to a wealthy, respected leader of the city. She did not want to leave all this behind. But the main reason that Lot's wife didn't want to leave is she was an evil woman who loved living in an evil place among evil people. Now, you know that I like types and shadows, and Sodom is a dramatic type or shadow of the world. The world's enticing. The world is incredibly enticing, just like Sodom. Sodom drew in Lot and kept his wife from fleeing. The world is filled with evil people, just like Sodom. The world is going to be judged, just like Sodom. Listen to the way that the destruction of the world parallels the destruction of Sodom. 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with roar, and the earth will be burned up exactly like what happened with Sodom. So to say that Lot's wife loved Sodom is to say that she loved the world because Sodom is a picture or type of the world. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And this is why Lot's wife was unsaved. She loved the world, which meant the love of the Father was not in her. Now listen to what happens to the world and those who love it. In the next verse, 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the world is passing away. Now even though it doesn't directly say that everyone associated with the world is passing away too, It does say that indirectly because it says, whoever does the will of God will abide forever, which implies that those who don't do the will of God or that those who do love the world will not abide forever and will pass away with the world. And this perfectly describes Lot's life, Lot's wife. She perished with Sodom, which is to say she perished with the world because she loved it. So as we remember Lot's wife, one more question. Let's think about any ways we love the world. Jesus commands us to remember Lot's wife, and as we remember her, let's ask ourselves, are there any ways in which we love the world like she loved the world? And then our last lesson might be one of the most obvious and perhaps the most important reason we're told to remember her. Lesson five, she was so close to salvation. Lesson five, she was close to salvation. I don't know if you could get any closer to salvation than Lot's wife and still perish. I think about Paul's conversation with King Agrippa, and he says, you've almost persuaded me, Paul. I mean, he was close. Think about the man that Jesus said, you're close or near to the kingdom of God. But I think Lot's wife looked even closer than them. Consider these verses that could easily describe her. Hebrews 10, 38. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back... My soul has no pleasure in him. She was one who shrunk back. Luke 9, 62, Jesus said, No one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And she had her hand to the plow when she was brought out of the city, but she looked back because she's not fit for the kingdom of God. So I ask you this, what are we supposed to remember about Lot's wife? Are we supposed to remember that she died? That's no big deal. Lots of people die. 
The Old Testament is filled with people who died. That's nothing. We're supposed to remember that she died when she had been so close to salvation. We could almost say that she was saved because the inhabitants of Sodom did not make it out of the city, but she did. She had the city, she had the judgment, she had the destruction behind her, the sulfur and fire, or I think it's translated brimstone in some translations, raining down, was behind her. She'd escaped. She had her husband and her children at her side. She had life with this righteous man in front of her. Who would not consider her saved? But right on the very threshold of deliverance, just before reaching the plains of Zawar or the place of safety, she's destroyed. And this might be the most important reason we should remember her. She was that close to salvation, but she perished with the world. Now, similarly, people can be so close to salvation, but perish with the world. And something that would terribly grieve me as a pastor, I, I, it's grievous as a pastor when there's sin in the church, or there's divorce, or there's struggles with different temptations. But I don't know that if there could be anything that would be more grievous to a pastor than people in his congregation who were close to salvation, but then perished. And Charles Spurgeon said there's nothing worse than this. Charles Spurgeon said, Doom befell her at the gates of Zoar, or right before she reached safety. He said, oh, if I must be damned, let it be with the mass of the ungodly having always been one of them, but to get up to the very gates of heaven and to perish there would be a most awful thing. So let me conclude with this. Lot's wife shows we can be recipients of much of God's grace and not be saved. Remember, there's two graces. There's salvific grace, the more common grace we know of, the grace that saves, but there's also common grace, the sunlight that falls on the wicked, or the rain and the sunlight that falls on the wicked and the righteous, so like many common graces, we can be recipients of much of God's grace and not be saved. Lot's wife shows that we could be married to a righteous believer and to not be saved. I can think of believers married to unbelievers and the great judgment that must await those unbelievers who have been set apart in the language of 1 Corinthians 7, made holy, but still rejecting salvation. Lot's wife shows we could witness the supernatural like she did with angels, but not be saved. Lot's wife shows we could be this close to salvation, even looking like we have been delivered from the wrath to come, but not be saved. When Lot and his wife were commanded to leave Sodom, there was this incredible urgency regarding their departure. It is emphasized. Genesis 19, 17, the angel said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And I would say that this is the exact same urgency that applies to us. The same thing that the angel said to Lot and his family could be said to us. So let's take advantage of this gracious opportunity God has given us to examine ourselves, be sure that we are not disregarding God's grace and the divine command to repent and believe. Father, I thank you for this sobering account with Lot's wife. I pray that none of us would take it lightly. I think especially about any children of Christian homes. I pray that you would grant them faith and repentance. I pray that you would save them, Lord, open their hearts to the gospel. I think in 1 Corinthians 7 about the children of believing parents being made holy or set apart. And so we thank you for the ways that you have set our children apart. 
but we need further than that, Lord. We don't need them just set apart. We do need them saved. And so I pray each of them would even be examining themselves at this time, that they would never be like Lot's wife, so close to salvation, but then perishing in the wrath that came. Lord, help all of us to examine ourselves. I thank you for this account, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.